Thank you for coming. My name is Ross Cochran. I teach in the College of Bible and Ministry at Harding University. This is the second of uh, two sessions on the ministry of Landon Saunders, Heartbeat. And uh, yesterday, uh, we looked at it more from a philosophical point of view. Uh, we looked particularly through the lens of human flourishing, the research coming up in the last 20 years through positive psychology and also through some work that uh, Yale Divinity School is doing. Uh, on what constitutes human flourishing, marking a shift in some of the psychological field uh, to looking not just at human dysfunction, but also uh, human thriving. And so we yes. looked at uh, the fact that Land has been talking about these same issues for 50 years. And so just kind of appreciating the forward thinking ministry of Landon and uh, his emphasis on the uh, what makes human beings uh, thrive. Uh, we talked about the mission of Heartbeat in these words. Uh, he says to speak good news to those farthest from the reach of the church, the unchurched, uh, the probably never be churched. Uh, might be the way to say that. Using language common to them. In previous years, he used the phrase using non-religious language. We'll talk about that some in a bit. And, uh, and then as recently as two years ago, he said in the Christian Scholars Conference, I want to define a word for the world and to speak that word in the midst of the world. And so we'll come back to that phrase as well. That's what's highlighted. Uh, I found this little symbol because it seems to me that Landon is a very trailblazing ministry, um, a trailblazer. Um, this symbol, if you've, been, if you've hiked much, you've probably seen one of these. Uh, this is a trail marker. Uh, it's made, uh, it, it's a makeshift marker. It's not something that's produced commercially or made out of wood or steel. Uh, it's on the trail using materials found on the trail. Um, it's uh, improvised. It's uh, contextualized, you might say, uh, but it's meant to symbolize for those who follow, uh, here's, here's a way to go. And um, I believe Landon's work with Heartbeat has been very uh, trailblazing. Uh, so what we're looking at today are theological tenets. What's the, what's the theological undergirding for this ministry? The question I want to ask is, how does one get from a biblical message delivered to believers in religious language and that somehow form the structure or foundation of a ministry spoken to non-believers uh, in the marketplace in non-religious language. That's, a, uh, I think, a, a question that I'm very intrigued with. He would sometimes say uh, that people don't immediately associate with the professionally religious. Mm -hmm. uh, his work in his broadcasting, his 60-second spots uh, in New York, uh, were often praised by the Religious Broadcasting Society as being some of the best work, uh, even though it wasn't overtly a religious, and so he's got some attention about that. So these two questions are kind of symbiotic to each other. What are the theological commitments that have guided Landon's ministry, but also what are the ministry attempts that have forged his theology? Those two questions uh, feed each other. I can remember him telling a story about his uh, being in uh, Northeast Arkansas, uh, preaching sermons, a couple of things he said. You know, I said I was reading the Gospels and found, I was in my office reading the Gospels and found uh, that I wasn't spending my time. Uh, Jesus was spending his time. I was studying for Bible classes and sermons and Jesus was not. He was out there among people. He was in the marketplace. A metaphor he's used uh, over and over again. Uh, and then the second story was that he remembered some migrant workers coming through. I don't know if this was in Corning, Gary, or somewhere else, but he he remembers ducking, uh, leaning forward and putting his head in the window of this automobile, this family that was seeking assistance, whether for gasoline or food, I'm not sure. But as he looked into the faces of that family, including the children, he realized he, the things he was saying inside the church building didn't have anything 
didn't have anything to offer his family. And so that's a good example, I think, of how ministry attempts shape theology. I've often thought we ought to do our theological reflection at Heathrow uh, Airport in the crossroads of humanity, lots of different cultures crossing back and forth and asking ourselves, what, what do we have to say to folks? And landed very much would be um, of, of that mindset of trying to find a way um, to, um, to speak to people in the marketplace. When you talk about starting places, um, options in theolo theological method, don't it? make too much of this, but I think it's an important thing to realize that uh, we always don't start in the same place when we do our theology. And so some have talked about the comparison of systematic theology, which would be trying to name all the big doctrines of the church, the Holy Spirit like we're doing this week, the church, God, the person and work of Christ, all those big systematic uh, questions. So systematic theology might ask the question, how is it that God is three in one? Practical theology would ask the question, the fact that God is three in one, what does that have to say about how we are with each other? Uh, how is relationship, how, how much of a part, how much of our understanding of who we are is embedded in a relational view of God? Uh, that's a practical theological question. Some call it a theology from above, starting with God's revelation. We pick up scripture, here's God's revelation, and we speak it to the world. Theology from below would start in the world and ask the questions, listen to the questions that humanity is asking, and then try to address those. And if you think about it, a lot of scripture is in fact that, it's response. It's response to a human dilemma, it's response to historical situation, it's responses to communities of faith trying to figure out in their particular context how to respond uh, to the world. And so in, in a real sense, our biblical documents, our theology from below. At least that's how they start. They start with the, uh, the questions at hand. So divine revelation is one starting point. Human situation, another. That uh, be another way to say that. Uh, Paul Tillich, whose uh, work has influenced Landon quite a bit, would talk about a charismatic theology and an apologetic theology. A charisma is the word for what the church preached. And he said, we need that. It's certainly uh, valuable. We can't dismiss that. But he said, an apologetic theology, again, starts with the human situation. Uh, so, uh, a reading here for you. Uh, Tillich distinguished between charismatic and uh, apologetic theology. He said, charismatic theology emphasizes the unchangeable truth of the message, the charisma, over against the changing demands of the situation. By situation, Tillich means the cultural context of a particular time and space. But in his view, charismatic theology often fails to adequately address the situation of modern humanity. He attempts to resolve this problem by writing an apologetic theology. Apologetic theology answers the questions being asked in one's cultural context or situation using the means provided by the situation. He speaks of a method of correlation and said, uh, theology proceeds in the following way. It takes, makes an analysis of the human situation out of which the existential questions arise and it demonstrates that the symbols used in the Christian mes message are answers to those questions. And I believe Landon has definitely started in the marketplace. He's um, a theology, starting with a theology from below. Um, Aristotle distinguished between three forms of knowing theoria, which we get a word theory from. Poesis is more creative knowing, so an artistic knowing. Uh, we might think of uh, different um, modes of intelligence, uh, multiple intelligences theory uh, these days. and. Um, kinetic and all that sort of stuff. Well, poesis would be along that. And praxis, though, is, a, is the knowing that comes from lived experience. 
And again, all these different pieces of language are ways of contrasting where you start when you do theology. And Landon has certainly started from below. So one of the things we could do is we could talk about Landon's work over time. We can look at his ideas and how they've changed over 50 years, how they've nuanced. We could look at products, these workshop books, Feeling Good About Yourself workbook, or the Course of Human Events, or some of the things he said uh, in his workshops. Uh, we could look at the geographical shifts like we did yesterday. Uh, he's moving from Northeast Arkansas to um, Abilene, or after this 80 World Tour, to Abilene, to Houston, to New York, and then to rural Vermont to see if he could in fact um, do, apart from his persona as Heartbeat President, uh, if he could be with people like he was asking other people to be with them. Uh, we could think of his transformational experiences, some of which we named yesterday that he's rehearsed uh, several times. If you want a really good summary of Landon's work, listen, two, three years ago, we decided in 2015, uh, there's a three o'clock presentation at these lectures on Friday. They did it in Stouffer Chapel. It was a wonderful uh, recounting of his journey. Uh, but the other way that we're going to do it, we're just going to look at Landon's canon within a canon. You probably have heard this phrase. Uh, it's, it's the idea that we don't read all our biblical text. We don't give it all equal attention. In our own tradition, for example, we've been much more focused on, say, Acts 2.38 than we have been, say, Ephesians 1.13. Uh, Ephesians 1.13 says, You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. Having uh, believed, you were marked in him with the Holy Spirit. And we've that does, doesn't, without mentioning baptism, we sort of have shied away from that, you see. Um, that's a whole other discussion, but uh, nevertheless, we don't all treat the same. We've gone to the conversion stories in Acts, for example. That's been a big part of our uh, canon within a canon uh, in our tradition. So the question we're asking is, what's Landon's canon within a canon? Where does he go? And uh, he would say this, <clears throat> if you're placing my work in Scripture, where would you look? First, you would look at Jesus. I was not asking what Jesus would do. I was asking with whom would Jesus be present? Different question. I took my cues from him on how to see the world and how to see human beings. If you looked at Paul, you would find my work in places like the middle chapters of 1 Corinthians and in his description of his work of becoming all things to all men. He was telling Christians how to respond to a dinner invitation from a pagan. Just go and don't raise questions of your own conscience. Later, Paul would urge the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitated Christ in the way that Christ engaged human beings. The, the more the church misses this part of the mission, the more it becomes preoccupied with itself, with the assembled church. And uh, we may revisit that uh, a little bit later. So what are Landon's canon within the canon? I want to invite you to open your Bibles and just, uh, or at least um, think with me about some stories you probably are familiar with. And uh, if you've heard Landon's work much, you'll go, oh yeah, I remember him talking about that, that text a lot. Uh, so the Gospel of John, John begins, John 1.14, where the Word becomes flesh and dwells for a while among human beings. You may know that John uses the word tabernacle, changes it into a verb. This dwelt for a while among them. The tabernacle literally pitched his tent among them. The tabernacle is it represents the presence of God. Now it's not in a structure, but it's in a, it's in a human being. And so God comes and lives in the midst of the world. And uh, that's paradigmatic for Landon, I think. John chapter 2, a text that frustrated me a long time. Jesus has a world to save. And yet he spends considerable time at table with people at a wedding feast. What's up with that? You know, maybe it's the task-oriented nature of some of us, but it's a frustrating story, unless you understand 
that how you be with others is a huge part of how Jesus proceeded. So the wedding feast. Uh, sowing and reaping. You've heard Landon talk about this. The, the woman at the well. And, uh, he talks to the disciples as they come back from getting food and says, look, we've tried. Um, they're surprised, by the way. They're surprised to find Jesus talking with this woman. Do you remember that reaction? And notice how often Jesus' responses elicit that response. They're surprised. I can't believe he didn't that. I can't believe he's doing that. Uh, which may be a cue to how we engage the marketplace. Mark, we're talking about that. Uh, you know, is this a surprising? Is, does this, would this be the way the world would predict we would respond? Or would this be a, a twist to that? Uh, something surprising. But then he turns as the woman returns from the village bringing her friends. He said, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And what Lando would say is, we've, we've gone out into the marketplace trying to reap where we've not sown. And so he's looked at his ministry, it sounds to me like, a lot of it as a sowing ministry. Uh, we're, we're sowing in, in soil that hasn't been really paid much attention to uh, over the last few years. Uh, the woman caught in adultery. Uh, I was thinking this morning, what if we gave that story a different title? rather than about the woman, what if it was about the men? How would we title that story if we looked at it from the vantage point of the men? You know, rocks in their hands, or you know, the judgmental men. And I believe, Landon would say, the church is the men in the story. The church has looked uh, with ensconce and looked with disdain uh, on people in the world. And uh, we've got to change that. And we'll look at that from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, John chapter 9, this m man born blind, the continually the religious people parade him in, asking, tell us again what happened to you? And they're not celebrating with the man that he now has his sight. Uh, they're trying to figure out how this happened on the Sabbath, and they're turning it into this religious problem. And Landon points us back to the beginning of the story, where it says, this happened that the work of God might be displayed in this man's life. So how, how does it that we bring about that same... Response. How is it that your church goes about trying to demonstrate the work of God in a person's life? How do we highlight that? How do we foster that? How do we call attention to that? Uh, these aren't texts I've heard Landon uh, dwell in so much, but if you continue thinking in John's stories about the issues of presence with others and advocacy of others, you know that the thing we're studying this week, the parakletos, uh, is sometimes translated advocate. It's literally someone who stands beside another. We think it's from... Uh, the world of um, courtroom analogy, the defense testimony, someone who comes and literally stands beside you to help you make your case. It's the word that's used of Jesus in 1 John 2. When we sin, we have one who speaks on our behalf to the Father. It's the same word. Uh, and so you have that emphasis of the, the, we become, in a sense, if we are like Jesus, who's like the Spirit, we become advocates of human beings. We stand beside them. But you see Jesus doing in John 8 as he scribbles in the dirt. Uh, he's recognizing that conversations have momentum and he shifts the momentum so that he can be a more effective advocate for her. Um, uh, then the homemaking language in John 14, it's not just that um, Jesus is preparing a room from us, for us, the first couple of verses of John 14, but if you keep reading, Jesus says, I won't leave you as orphans. My Father and I will come and make our home with you. So there's a lot. Boy, if I were a homemaker, that'd be the that'd be my chapter. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then, of course, the language in John 17 about in the world <coughs> not of the world. And I think this is a critical um, issue in Landon's work, an important issue as he describes how is it that we can be distinctively holy, which we're called to be, and yet not be holy in ways that are off-putting to others. How can we right. be with the unholy, we might say, in ways that are, I don't know if that's how Landon would say it or not, but in ways that aren't uh, distancing. Salt, and, salt has its distinctive nature or it's not salt. But it's not meant to stay in the shape. You know? It's meant for engagement. So how do we engage the world? The, in the world we've neglected, I think Landon would say, uh, to the to the other task of being not of the world. In the Gospel of Luke, here we want to look at how do you view persons. Uh, I would encourage you as you read through Luke's accounts to look for the words about sight and looking. Uh, most of these are stories. And also about, uh, uh, you've got how Jesus is presented as someone who's rejected, as someone who's in exile, as someone who has no place to lay his head. You know, uh, He's not seen as someone who uh, it's, it's an identity we're supposed to identify with this Jesus, beginning as a baby who's pursued, uh, is threatened, with his, his life is threatened, all those kinds of uh, stories there. <clears throat> you go to Luke chapter 4, uh, when he, it's the first ministry attempt by Jesus in Luke. It's not his first thing he does in his ministry, but it's the first thing Luke records. You may remember this story. He goes to his hometown, uh, Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, he opens, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and it sounds like he finds the reading. Okay, here it is. And here's what he chooses to read. The Spirit of the Lord has what? Anointed me. This is a messianic text. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for captives, etc., etc., etc. And oh, they can't say enough good about it. They have praised this boy. He's grown up, and look what a fine young man he is. And isn't he still single? And uh, all that sort of stuff. They're trying to match make him with other people. You know, they just can't say enough good about it. About five verses later, they, they throw him off. They try to throw him off the cliff. What happened? What did he say? Remember what he said? He told two stories. That if you're sitting in the synagogue, you think the stories are about Elijah and Elisha. But Jesus is saying, look, God has always had a place in His kingdom, in His heart. For Gentiles, the people you've excluded, God has included. And so Elisha sent to Assyria, Naaman. Elijah sent to a widow in Zarephath, a Gentile. And he makes the point, it's not as if there weren't any widows in Israel. It's not as if there weren't any lepers in Israel. But God chose to include and tend to these folks. And uh, if you start messing with people's boundaries of who they think is in and who they think is out, it's not pretty. But this is how Jesus inaugurates his ministry. And so you read all the way through Luke, over and over and over, these stories of inclusion of people that the church of the day has dismissed and forgotten and ostracized. Um, so uh, Luke chapter uh, 7, the story of the widow of Nain, he sees her and has compassion. Listen to that phrase in Luke. He sees her and has compassion on her. He sees her and has pity, or sees him, and has pity on him. That phrase is, uh, I think, significant. And of course, you've you've heard Landon talk about this story, Luke chapter seven, thirty-six. Jesus invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee. 
I was preaching on this story um, in the fall, and there in the pulpit I realized, you know, Jesus went home with Simon the Pharisee, and of course you want to feel compelled to say, he also went home with tax collectors. <clears throat> and then it occurred to me, Jesus was a single man. He didn't say no to, we don't say no to any dinner invitation. <laughs> but I think Jesus was being more noble than I am. I would say, yeah, what are you going to have? What time? You know? But uh, what's the point in this story? Here, in comes the woman who lived a sinful life. Luke's probably just being a gentleman. And, and Jesus can sense the disdain in Simon's face and in his mind and heart. And so he asks Simon the question, what? Do you see this one? And of course, Simon probably mutters to himself, yeah, I see her. And if you are sorry, you wouldn't let her touch you like that. Yeah. We'll look again. You heard Landon talk about this story? It's the primary story for you. How do you see a human being? What do you see when you look at a human being? And Simon and Jesus become contrasts in, in how you see people. How do you, how do you see, what do you see? What comes to mind as you lay eyes on their appearance, as you, lay, as you come to know their history, as you come to know their addictions? What, what comes to mind? How do you process that? What, what categories do you create in your mind for this? And uh, over and over again, of course, you see Jesus responding with compassion. And if you'll notice, in Luke's Gospel, the heroes in Luke's Gospel are the underdogs. The Simon's this upstanding Pharisee. And, uh, here's this woman, and Jesus says, you may go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Um, John chapter 10, the, the uh, Good Samaritan story. It, it is a story about helping others. Of course it is. But if you have this language of the priest walks along and he sees... The man in the ditch and does nothing. The Levite comes along and sees. He saw him and passed by. But the Samaritan comes along and he sees the man and has compassion on him. Go and do likewise. And so the, what's, what's our initial response to people? And when we read the Gospels, Jesus' initial response is, is, is an automatic response. He assumes they're doing the best they can with the cards they've been dealt. Uh, he assumes they want what we all want. And, and whatever they've tried or whatever they've been persuaded to try just hasn't worked out well. And so what can we do is we come alongside folks and encourage them uh, in that. Uh, the banquet parables. When I'm trying to grow, I'll try to pick a text and we'll camp on it a long time. When I really want to grow, I pick a text that I'm not obeying very well. And Luke 14, I'm not obeying very well. Who do you invite to your table? I've heard Landon say more than once that um, the future of our churches will not be decided in our church buildings, but in our living rooms. I'd probably say around our dinner tables. Who do we invite home? Don't invite your friends. But invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. They can't be paid. So very, very challenging stuff there. But again, a sensitivity to the ostracized, a sensitivity to those who've been shunned. Uh, the rich man in Lazarus. Um, the, the story there is that Lazarus is a beggar. He's so poor. But again, it's a table story. That, By the way, I heard a uh, class yesterday morning by Dusty Rush about Luke Acts and breaking bread. I thought it was tremendous. Uh, he references story as well. The Zacchaeus story, 
That's a great story. I remember hearing Landon tell this story. Jesus comes along and he looks up and sees Zacchaeus in the tree and says what? Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to your house today. And Landon's response is, you know that Landon burned, or that Zacchaeus burned bark all the way down. <laughs> so excited to be with Jesus. And uh, off they go. And verse 7 says, the people murmured. They complained. They grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. You know, and Jesus doesn't even break stride. Because, well, he's for those people. Well, we'll see more of this as we go to the uh, Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, not just, not just a, a canon within Landon's canon, it's canon within Jesus' canon, right? Uh, when he's asked what the greatest command is, the response is, well, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Landon makes the point, but Jesus added a second command. Why did Jesus add the second command when he's asked for one? To love your neighbor as yourself. Because Landon would point out, right, that uh, if you separate those two things, the most some of the most dangerous people in the world proceed in the name of loving God. And if you'd separate that from the love of our fellow human beings, it's trouble. It's, um, it's, in, it's harm inflicting. We cannot separate the love of God uh, from the love of neighbor. And some texts I think are, are very uh, important to, to Landon. And uh, I'd like to point those to you in a little more uh, detail. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and following, the calling of Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said. And so Matthew got up and followed him. And you might even raise the question, why, when Jesus is chewing his, choosing his A-string, why does he choose tax collector. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many, many tax collectors and sinners came in and ate with him and his disciples. And I think maybe it's the Gospel of Mark that says, like they usually did, or something like that. It has some comment about this is normative. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why is he eating with those kind of people? Why does he spend time with those kind of people? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Now, if you read this same story in Mark and in Luke, and read them side by side with Matthew's story, uh, you'd find that they're told in very similar language. Very similar. And when you get to this stage, uh, Mark and Luke give two statements. But Matthew's gospel includes a third statement that they don't include. And it makes it kind of stick out. So Mark and Luke say it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But Matthew's gospel includes this additional statement by Jesus. Go and learn what this means. And quoting Hosea, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Which becomes sort of this... If you read Matthew's Gospel through that lens, the contrast of mercy and sacrifice, it makes a lot of things in Matthew's Gospel stick out that are unique to Matthew's Gospel. But go, church, and learn what this means. Uh, the church has done sacrifice well. Yes. We, in fact, have made it our identity too many times. What we do at our temples and how we do it and how frequently we do it has become paramount to our spending time with folks in 
around table. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is being uh, questioned about who he's spending time with. And we have to assume that Jesus knows what he's doing. <laughs> uh, and that Jesus is doing the right thing here. And the church of his day criticizes him. Matthew chapter 12, you have a very similar dynamic going on there. Jesus' disciples are walking through the grain fields. It's the Sabbath day, and you know, if you see Jesus and Sabbath in the same paragraph, there's going to be trouble following. <coughs> Not, Jesus isn't trying to make trouble. He's just, what's happening is he's walking through the grain fields, and the disciples are doing what? They're picking grain and eating it. Why are they doing that? Because they're hungry. And again, Jesus is questioned. Why are you letting your disciples do what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And you've heard Landon say this, if you know his work at all. He said, you always put the human being first. Always. You always do the right thing for the human being. That, that overshadows all other issues and questions. He lets them eat grain because they're hungry. And he often, then he'll offer a couple of Old Testament presents. Remember how David and his companions, they went into the temple and nature showbread, which was only lawful for priests to do. I'm not the first one to do something like this, Jesus says. And again, he says to them, if you knew what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It only occurs in Matthew's Gospel. Mark and Luke tell this story. They tell it in very similar terms. In Matthew's Gospel, we have two illustrations of precedence. And we have the presence of this additional statement. I desire mercy. A little bit more than sacrifice? No. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it becomes a kind of contrast for the whole prophetic tradition, doesn't it? You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, railing at the people. Don't come, God says, don't come back into my temple until you learn how to be merciful to each other. Don't, don't say any more prayers to me until you learn to get this right. And so in the Matthew, he's the, the gospel that picks up that prophetic uh, tradition and, and carries it forward. Jesus does this so often, going to Matthew's house and people like him, that he garners the reputation as being a friend of sinners. Now, now think about it. Like that's a bad thing. Yeah, like that's a bad thing. Yeah. I, I assume Jesus wore that badge. So I think, wow, I'm glad it's coming through. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, think about that. Think about the church's relationship to our world and Jesus' relationship to his world. What Landon is calling us to is to be back in the marketplace, to be at those tables. How do you get an invitation to those tables? How do you, how, when, when are we with folks who are farthest from saying yes to God? Where do we find those people? How do we, how do we conduct relationship with them in such a way that they, you know, uh, one, someone who worked closely with Landon said that Landon has said, you know, Jesus was the best company in the room. Right. I, I assume that when sinners saw Jesus coming, they did this. <laughs> Here comes Jesus, our friend. He's fun. Being with him is life-giving. When can we be with you again? And that's a very different response from the world than we seem to be given. Yes. Uh, and so how do we, how do we change that? What, what, what's, what's up with that? Um, uh, the Matthew 25, the um, 
parable, the final parable, uh, the parable of the final judgment. Only Matthew includes this story. And he says the, the king comes, separates the two groups, uh, one from the other. And what's the criteria? Did you dispense mercy? Did you feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoners, tend to the sick? If you did, stand over there. And if you didn't, stand over there. And that's it. Did you dispense mercy? Mercy, not sacrifice. And then Matthew 23, uh, of course, is, is this uh, woe to you statements. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. Woe to you Pharisees, you bunch of snakes. And as Landon points out, uh, the harshest words Jesus spoke are to religious people. The harshest words we have from Jesus' lips are spoken not to sinners, but to the church of his day because they so institutionalized the religion to the point that uh, they made, they, uh, people became uh, something other than the highest priority. Uh, this is in my notes, uh, my Gospel of Matthew notes. I, have, I leave a blank there and ask the students to, what would you put here? The greatest enemy of religion is, and Landon would say, Jesus. Jesus is the greatest enemy of religion because uh, as religion becomes increasingly institutionalized, the maintenance of the institutional machine takes all the church's resources. It becomes increasingly inward, inward facing. Um, in my field, we sometimes talk about orthodoxy. Orthodontics is you get your teeth straight. Orthodox is you get your worship straight. Orthopathy is pathos, feeling. You get your desire straight. And orthopraxy is your action in the world. And if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, the priority is on how are we living in the world. It's not orthodoxy. And too many times in religious traditions, orthodoxy becomes the, the big banner. Do you line up with the beliefs and practices? And in Matthew's Gospel, that's not the big banner. The big banner for Jesus is do you know how to be with people? Uh, in ways that are, are life-giving. Uh, and so in his Power of Receiving book that um, he wrote back in 79, he said, I urge you not to stumble over the perplexities of cultural religion. Religion and Jesus are not synonymous. He tells a story of uh, picking up a hitchhiker one night. Uh, 2 a.m., I think he said it was, and a uh, man got in his car, and they're driving along, and the man says, well, what do you do? And Landon said, I just thought I would abandon all, uh, everything I knew to be true. He said, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the man said, oh, you're into religion. Landon said, nope, mm -hmm. I'm not. And began to spell out the difference between who Jesus is and, and what religion has become too often and how those things are not uh, at all the same. And so... Uh, as we talk to people, I find myself saying, look, if you're, dis if you're dis uh, gruntled, um, there's other dis words uh, that escape me right now, but uh, discouraged about what you see in organized religion, you're probably closer to Jesus than you think you are, you know, because he was too. Uh, and Landon would emphasize uh, that as well. Well, uh, Landon has said this. He said... Um, I arrived in Abilene in January of 1971, having initially agreed with the administrators of Herald of Truth to create a daily radio program for outsiders. <coughs> he said, two ideas were firmly fixed in my mind. 
and heart and would drive the work of heartbeat. First, the world was the context for the work I would do. <clears throat> so you may remember him talking about uh, they had an office for him in the Highland Church building. He said, this, is, this won't work. If I'm going to be in the, speak to the marketplace, I've got to be in the marketplace. So he officed somewhere else. <coughs> Bonhoeffer said, Christ is only Christ in the midst of the world. Right. Rosemary Radford Ruther said in a letter to Thomas Merton, I distrust all academic theology. Only theology bred in the crucible of experience is any good. Religion always suffers from the scourge of insularity. Scripture apart from the world becomes cold law and foolish rules. The church apart from the world loses its reason for being. The world, when seen in context, as context and not as an object or an enemy, helps us form our message. So the world is an ally, not an opponent. And we speak often of the world as an opponent. He says, secondly, a radical focus on the human being as the nexus of world and faith would light the center of the work, not church, not doctrine, not belief systems, not worship, but a human being. These two ideas, the, the epistemological role of the world and the radical focus on the human being force a rethinking of our pedagogy. And if we don't, I think we might as well forget trying to engage the world. And then he said, I chose three building blocks for my central message. One was the worth of the human being. Uh, he would often say, if we don't get the human being right, Nothing else is going to work. Relationship as the primary place where human life grows or fails. So he's talked a lot about how we relate. The place of love, trying to help people uh, rethink the relationships when they fail, trying to think, rethink, help people rethink how they respond to people who hurt them. Same kinds of things Jesus did, just in different language. And three, joy as the central element for navigating the world. These three take us to the depths of human experience. <clears throat> so if we think about elements of a theology of ministry, and we don't have a lot of time here, um, uh, he would ask, do we live in constant consciousness of the importance of receiving people? This notion of, uh, from the words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, that we, how are we received by others and how will we receive others? Those two questions are both important. How do we earn a hearing? How do we uh, present ourselves in such a way that is authentic and also uh, able for a person far away from Christianity to welcome us as friend. You know? It's not a strategy. Okay? But we have to present, we have to live the gospel as well as, uh, as speak it. Um, I had a teacher at Boston College who said, we have plenty of good textbooks, what we need are better text persons. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I think he's right. Um, John 1.38, I wanted you to hear uh, how he did this. He said, one day there were a couple of men wondering about the things we wonder about concerning Jesus. This is from John chapter 1. They were following along behind Jesus, and all of a sudden, they were caught completely by surprise. This great teacher turned and asked them the deepest question they'd ever faced. The question was, what do you seek? It's also translated, what are you looking for? I think the New International Version may say, what is it you want? Now you know that's really the right question for us. You see what he did there? He took this narrative of people asking Jesus a question. He said, you know what? That's our question. Because we're searching for something. We know we haven't found all the answers about life yet. And so we're still continuing to look. We're probing more deeply into the mysteries of life, hoping to discover the truth of life. Well, 
Um, so, what are you looking for? Uh, world is context, and Jesus is in the marketplace. Uh, he's often said that. That's the title for this uh, particular class. Uh, locating God's activity in the world as much, if not more, than in the church. Okay. Whereas the church tends to locate God's work among us. Uh, God so loved the world, I didn't put the reference there because I couldn't remember it. <laughs> but you know this other phrase? I wanted to, to ask you to look at something with me. First John 2, uh, do not love the world. That's what We focused more on that phrase than the John 3.16 phrase. But do you remember what John 2 spells, First John 2 spells out that is? Do not love the world or anything in the world. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. Okay? These are desires. These are desires that put material or the sensuality uh, or accomplishment or things like that. James 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I've often said parents have, have needed to have two conversations with their kids. One is, I want you to be careful who your friends are. Because we know the formative influence of peers. We watch that very carefully. But eventually, we should have had a second conversation with our kids and said, now that you know who you are in Christ, go out there and find Matthew and bring him home with you. you know? <laughs> go, go find Zacchaeus and bring him home. <clears throat> you can play over here. You know? <laughs> Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We've taken that and, and made... We've chosen to disassociate ourselves with people who aren't Christian. But if you look at the first three verses uh, of that text, um, I can quote them. They say, one, verse two, verse three. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's these desires that live in your heart. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you do so with selfish motives. And then there's a third verse that says something similar there. Is anybody there? Yeah. GT, would you read that? One through three? Four, one through three, James. Mm -hmm. Those conflicts and disputes among you right there? Mm -hmm. Where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are war within you? You want something and do not have it. So you commit murder. And you covet something, you cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. This is important. Um, biblically, the world is not defined as something out there. Mm -hmm. The world is defined as a set of desires that live in here. So we've, we've used images of the church as a fortress. We're just going to build this big wall and keep the world out. Okay? And the problem is, of course, we're carriers. It's not that you can't do that. And so this choice of disassociation from the world is a mistake. Theologically, it's a mistake. In all other ways, it's a mistake. Here's a text from 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. See, told you we're not supposed to be around you know, of people who aren't righteous, right? Not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy or robbers or idolaters since you'd have to leave the world to do that. And of course, that's ridiculous. You see, Paul is assuming that we're going to be there. Paul's assuming we're going to be in relationship with immoral people. This text is about somebody who professes to be a Christian and doesn't live like it. 
you disassociate from that person as an act of loving discipline. It's not, you're not to make them an enemy. The goal is not to punish them. The goal is to get their attention so they might discard this um, uh, immorality. So, uh, the church as an institution versus an organism. Lana would say uh, organisms are organized, but institutions take organization to uh, the extreme. And the resources go internally. Anybody heard him talk about going outside the camp, the language from... Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful text, Hebrews 13. He wrote a Restoration Quarterly article about it uh, some years ago. Go outside the camp. He said, the problem with the church is we focused inwardly. And we need to go outside the camp. By the way, that text, uh, 1310, um, says, we have an altar to eat from that those who worship in the temple don't know about. He says, when the priest offers a sacrifice and sprinkles the blood on the altar, the bodies of the animals are burned outside the camp. And so, too, Jesus also was crucified outside the city gates. And then it says this, let us go to him, Jesus, outside the camp. And it's an interesting, theologically, uh, it's an interesting idea that, you know, we sing songs about, I just want to be where you are. And, and, and I don't know where we think that is, but, right. <laughs> you know, we encounter Jesus in the world. He's already there, working. And so sometimes you'll read today about um, missiological approaches, a missional approach to being church, as opposed to an attractional model. says, hey, we're, good, we're doing church pretty well. We think you ought to come, 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 check it out. A missional view, I was just rereading... Um, Leonard Allen's uh, article reflecting on the update of his book, The Cruciform Church, that was written some years ago. He said, you know, um, we recognize that our context has changed. And we no longer can think of ourselves as churches who send missionaries. We have to think we are the missionary. And individually missionaries to our various places of work um, and neighborhood. So the question becomes, what images most accurately convey the church's relationship with the world? Not fortress. Not ostrich with its head in the sand. Um, he uses, and I do too, the, the image of a football team, a huddle versus the line of scrimmage. You know, our, our Sunday morning assemblies are the huddle. They're not the goal. The most important thing is moving the ball down the field. And so the line of scrimmage, where we go out in our various roles and context and interface with the world, uh, that will be what will be important. Well, uh, and then uh, transformation of the ourselves more than thinking of transformation of the other. Those things can happen reciprocally, um, I believe. And but then the if it's not good news, if it doesn't is isn't received as good news. One of the ways to think about heartbeat is through the lens of communication theory. How does the audience hear what we're saying? If it's not good news, then we need to rethink it. But again, uh, Lana would point us to use of language. That's, that's why this whole notion of he's discarded, not discarded, but for his context uh, in the world, he doesn't use religious language. He doesn't want to be associated with typically the religious stuff because why? People turn it right off. Mm -hmm. And he's experimented with this. And uh, when he said we uh, let our broadcast be sponsored by a church or a religious group, he said the mail whoosh, mm -hmm. went to zero. Uh, we, we quit hearing from pretty convicted about that. Well, uh, he's turning us toward the marketplace. I think it's a, I, I don't know of another ministry like it. And uh, that's my interest in it, and probably yours too. But thanks for coming today.